We're reading from John chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 43 through 54. John 4, starting at verse 43. And after the two days, he, Jesus, went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. He came therefore again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son is healed. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said therefore to him, yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour that Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray. Dear Father, we submit this, this time to You and we ask that You would make our hearts attentive to Your Word. Father, we pray that You would correct that which is, um, which is wrong in our understanding of how You work among men to produce faith, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, Your way is revolutionary and, and we pray that we would understand and live it out to the glory of our Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Have you ever uh, entertained the thought that it would be a lot easier to trust God with all the things that you have to deal with in your life if you could just once see a spectacular miracle of the kind that, the, that Jesus' disciples got to see? If even just one time you could... You could see God raise a man from the dead who had been dead for four days. Or heal a man so that he stands up and walks as if he had been walking all his life when in fact he had been lame from birth. Surely, if, if you and I got to see something along those lines, even just once, surely then it would be easy to trust God with the kind of stuff that we have to deal with. Right? Is that how it would work? Is that how it worked for the people who actually did witness the miracles of Christ? Did seeing those miracles with their own eyes cure their unbelief? I mean, seeing is believing, right? Everybody knows that. 
Once again, our passage this morning focuses on one particular encounter that one particular man had with Jesus Christ. But as we've seen with other individual and group encounters that people that met with Christ, uh, this this one goes way beyond just being an, a one-on-one interaction. It touches every single one of our lives here and now. Now, during this particular encounter, Jesus graciously transformed one man's understanding of what it means to believe in Him, to believe in Christ. He took that man from an imitation of faith that changes nothing that really matters to a real faith that changes everything that matters. (laughs) And the difference between the faith that man had at the beginning of his meeting with Jesus and the faith that he walked away with at the end of that meeting isn't really about a distinction in the nature of faith. Faith's a pretty basic proposition. Faith is belief. It's trust. But the radical change that God brought about in this man's entire concept of salvation was all about the connection between faith and sight. Jesus exposed A lie. A lie about how that connection works. A lie that undermines and destroys faith. And he replaced that lie with a revolutionary truth. It's the the same truth that even today brings men out of the darkness and into the light. The first thing I want to make sure that we recognize about this passage is that it is very much connected with the passage that came just before it. John begins in verse 43 with the words, and after the two days, Jesus went forth from there into Galilee. So which two days and from where? (laughs) Well, you just look at the previous narrative and you see that Jesus and His disciples had just spent two days in a city called Sychar in Samaria. I'm going to show you a map just so you can get the relative position of Galilee and Samaria. After those two days, He went from Samaria to Galilee. And I should point out that it's it's not at all unusual for John to to point to chronology by saying using the phrase, after these things. In fact, that's how he starts chapter 5. But this is different. This is very precise. He's saying, and after these two days, Jesus came from Samaria into Galilee. See, he's telling us this was an immediate thing. It followed right after the interaction that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well and with the people of Sychar. But the connection that he's drawing goes way further than chronology. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. Right after John tells us that Jesus went from Samaria to Galilee, he says in verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Our first impulse when we read those words is to think that, okay, Jesus is moving away from his home country to wherever he's headed because the people in his home country don't honor him. Some commentators take it that way because they they say, well, okay, Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem of Judea. And that's where this little trip started, right? But 
Jesus' stomping grounds ever since before He could stomp were in Galilee. He had spent His entire life with His parents and His brothers and His sisters in Galilee. His hometown is Nazareth in Galilee. And no, no, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. <laughs> Jesus had several siblings according to the flesh. Now when the other Gospels speak of Jesus' home country, they are always talking about Galilee. In Matthew 13, in the last part of that chapter, Matthew is narrating a particular event that happened in a synagogue in Galilee, almost certainly in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And he says that the people in that region and in that city knew Jesus really well. They knew all about His family. They knew that He was a carpenter. And so when He came into the synagogue and He started speaking like a rabbi, they said, this man hasn't been schooled by a rabbi. What authorizes him to say these things? And what authorizes him? And how is it that he, he does miraculous things? By the way, it was right there, Matthew 13, that Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his home country and in his own household. And I believe John, here in John 4, 44, is referring to that statement that Jesus made. Later in John's Gospel, we'll see that in this early phase of Jesus' ministry, even his own brothers taunted him because they really didn't think he was anything special. So here's an important question. Was it because the Galileans didn't have good evidence that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah that they failed to honor Him? No, it was not. Verse 45 might seem a little surprising at first. It says, so when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans received Him. Having seen all the things that He did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. See, three times a year, all Israelites came to Jerusalem for the great pilgrimage festivals. And Passover was one of those festivals. But it says, when He came to Galilee, the Galileans received Him. But didn't John just say that Jesus Himself said a prophet is has no honor in His own home country? So did they receive Him or did they dishonor Him? Which is it? Well, the word for received in verse 45 is probably better translated welcomed. And that's how some of your translations reflect it. The word in John 1, to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in His name. That word means to take to yourself. This word means to show hospitality or to welcome. The Galileans extended the hand of hospitality to Jesus and then John tells us why. He says, having seen the things that He did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. They had seen Jesus do miracles in Jerusalem. And now He was in Galilee and they all were all gathering around Him. John is also quick to remind us that the place in Galilee where these events happened in this passage is Cana. It's the same place where Jesus' first miracle was done at the wedding feast where He turned 120 plus gallons of water into fine aged wine. 
I believe John's making sure that we know that the people of Galilee had seen many visible signs that Jesus was who He claimed to be. So what effect had all that seeing had on them? Well, if seeing is believing, then the Galileans should have been some of the the first and the most eager to come to faith in Christ. Well, Matthew's Gospel gives us some very illuminating information about that point. (laughs) But before we look at that, let's do a little more geography here. Galilee, in in the north of Palestine, you've got the region of Galilee. And then in that red box up there is the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to drill in a little bit further. Along the north and northwest shore of Galilee in Jesus' day was a cluster of three towns that were only a few miles from each other. The names of those towns were Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Less than a day's walk from those towns to the west is Cana, the location in which these events occur. And then south of that, a little less than a day's journey is Nazareth. Now here's where it starts to get really interesting. According to Matthew's Gospel, it was in those very cities in Galilee that Jesus performed most of His miracles. In Matthew 4, right after Jesus called several of His disciples to follow Him, Matthew writes this. He says that Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about Him went into all Syria. And they brought to Him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and He healed them. And great multitudes followed Him from Galilee. They at least followed Him around. The people from Jesus' home country in Galilee were the same people who got to see firsthand more of His spectacular miracles than anybody else. And of course, seeing is believing. Right? Listen to the words that Matthew records in Matthew 11. Verses 20-24. to Then He, Jesus, began to reproach the cities in which most of His miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The Gospel accounts make three very important assertions about the cities of Galilee. The people in those cities knew Jesus the best. They got to see with their own eyes more of His miracles than anybody else did. And they were the most resistant to believing in Jesus as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. How could that be? Seeing is believing, right? 
Wrong. Throughout both Testaments of the Bible, most of the people who witness the grandest, most visible miracles of God's intervention in His creation throughout history have not believed in Him. I mentioned up front that right at the beginning of this passage, John was careful to make a strong connection with the preceding passage. The passage about the couple of days that Jesus and His disciples spent in a town of Samaria. When they were in Samaria, Jesus did no spectacular miracles. Nothing visible. When the men from Sychar came out to meet with Jesus at the well and then invited Him and His disciples to stay and talk with them a couple of more days, they did so having seen no spectacular miracle. At first, all they had to go on was the enthusiastic testimony of a disgraced woman. When they came out to the well to talk with Jesus, He didn't show them any signs and wonders. He talked with them. What happened to them when they heard for themselves what Jesus had to say? John 4, verses 41 and 42 says of those men, they believed because of His Word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you told us that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritans got it. God raised up many true worshipers from that community of Samaritans, the people that the Jews despised. But if they didn't get to see any miracles, <laughs> what compelled them to believe? I mean, seeing is believing, right? They came to Jesus not to be healed of illnesses, not to be miraculously fed, not to see their people restored to a place of glory and prestige that they had lost because they never had any. The Galilean Jews came to Jesus to see signs. The Samaritans came to Jesus to see Jesus. To hear Jesus. To meet with Him. They heard the Word that Jesus spoke to them and that living and active Word that is always empowered by the Holy Spirit was enough. It wasn't just enough, it was plenty. <laughs> they said, we heard for ourselves and we know that this One is the Savior of the world. Beloved, hearing is believing and believing is seeing. Hearing is believing and believing is seeing. You may be thinking, wow, Tom, that's a lot of development for the first three verses of a 12-verse passage. But stick with me and I think you'll see the method to my madness and we will move more, uh, more quickly through the text. In verses 46 to 53, John records a conversation with a royal official who came to make an urgent request of Jesus. The rest of the passage is about that conversation. <laughs> a conversation in which Jesus, spiritually speaking, took that man from Galilee to Samaria. 
The man who came to see Jesus was most likely an influential member of King Herod's staff, his court. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of power, of influence in Galilee. None of that mattered when he came to Jesus. This was a man who came in desperation. His son, who was in Capernaum about 20 miles to the east, was grievously ill, barely clinging to life. The man implored Jesus to come down and heal his son. And the initial response that he got from Jesus wasn't what he was looking for. Jesus said to him, unless y'all, you people, see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the negative at the end of that, that statement is very emphatic. You certainly will not believe. Jesus lumped that man together with all the people of Galilee and He indicted the whole lot of them for buying into the same proposition upon which mankind to this very day has built its whole construct of reality. The proposition that seeing is believing. The confident assertion that your eyes, your senses, your logic will give you all the data you need to determine what's credible and what's not credible. To know what to believe and what not to believe. But see, the problem with the proposition seeing is believing is that it assumes that we're not blind. I can pretty well imagine the depth of frustration the man felt at this point. He's pleading with Jesus to come with him and to heal his son who could die any moment. And Jesus appears to be treating his pleas as an opportunity to to give a lecture on the nature of true faith. Jesus isn't supposed to do stuff like that, is He? If you think that was hard to take, just wait till we get to chapter 11. When Mary comes to Jesus with news that her brother, Jesus' own dear friend Lazarus, is near death, and Jesus waits two whole days before He even starts moving in the direction of Bethany where Lazarus is dying. Jesus isn't supposed to do stuff like that, is He? See, if if my situation is that desperate, and if Jesus is as loving and caring as the Bible says that He is, then surely He's supposed to take care of my crisis now and worry about teachable moments later. But God's Word tells us that Jesus is supposed to do exactly that kind of thing. See, transforming our whole concept of salvation is absolutely foundational to saving us. God has to pull us out of our pitch dark, waterless cisterns that we with all of our supposedly brilliant perception and logic and wisdom have dug for ourselves and fallen into. And He has to do that in order to bring us into His Very surprising, completely astonishing, worldview-redefining light. See, giving blind people really impressive stuff to look at (laughs) won't make them see. At this point in the narrative, we might have expected a man like this, a man of significant power and influence, to pull rank. 
to just demand that Jesus drop everyone else's problems and come with them and heal His Son the same way He had been healing people in Jerusalem. But the man didn't pull rank. He simply pleaded with Jesus once again. He said, Sir, come down before my child dies. The word sir is a respectful word. It comes from the word for Lord. Not the kind of word that a royal official would generally use with the carpenter's son. This man obviously believed at some level that Jesus could heal his son. But once again, Jesus did not do what he asked, did he? Instead of going with him and performing a miraculous healing of his son while the man watched, Jesus sent him away with a promise. Jesus sent him away with a promise. Now, if you're anything like me, you want to add a word to that statement. A word like just or only. Jesus sent the guy away with just a promise. As if, as if somehow Jesus required that that man settle for something inferior to what he had requested. But beloved, until we understand that Jesus sent that man away with something infinitely superior to what he asked for, we don't get the passage. Jesus sent that man away with a promise from the God who cannot lie. I've known people, I've known professing Christians whose whole life revolves around some ecstatic experience or what they see as miraculous experience and they try to order their whole life around that and carry that around with them. All you can carry around with regard to a miracle is the memory of it. The living and active Word of God, the promises of God, that you can carry around with you every single day and it will change your entire world view. Jesus said to the man, go your way. Your son lives in the man. The second half of that verse, verse 50, says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he started off. Jesus had done a work in that man's heart that escorted him across the threshold from darkness into light. And as that man headed home, he left with faith in the Savior whose character and whose word is infinitely more trustworthy than His eyes. And our eyes. The living and active Word of God beats a visible miracle any day. For a man whose son is on the brink of death, it's one thing to, to seek out the person whom you've been told can heal your son and to drag him back home with you so you can watch him do it. That kind of faith says, when I see, I'll believe. I'll believe. It's quite another thing to turn and walk away believing <laughs> when what you've been given is a promise. Because to believe a promise, you have to trust the person that's making the promise. To believe a promise, you have to trust the person that's making the promise. And when the person you're trusting is Jesus, that's when God opens your eyes and you finally see. The faith that Jesus granted to this man was the same faith 
He granted to many men in Samaria. It wasn't what they saw that convinced them. It was whom they heard. It was the Word that they heard from the Savior of the world. They knew, they heard, they believed, and they knew, they saw. That's who this is. This is the Savior of the world. It didn't go the other direction. Then a day later, as he's on his way back home, he came upon some of his slaves who were eagerly seeking him. He'd come out to meet him to tell him that his son was living. I can just see the grin on this man's face as he, he asked them, and at what hour did he make this amazing turnaround? Did my son make this amazing turnaround? He already knew the answer. It was the seventh hour. It was the hour when Jesus said, your son lives. It was no doubt the instant that Jesus said, your son lives. Jesus finishes out this episode by saying that the man himself believed along with his whole household. Believed what? Believed that Jesus could heal his son? Well, that had already been accomplished by the time the man got home. No, they believed in Jesus. They believed that He was who He claimed to be. That He was who the prophets claimed Him to be. That He is who the apostles claimed Him to be. The disciples. One of the many beautiful things about this episode is how Jesus deals with those who come to Him even with very unimpressive faith. I don't know about you, but I feel like my faith is always unimpressive. <laughs> if you come to Jesus with weak, hesitant, uncertain faith, you might get a rebuke from Him. But you will not be sent away. In Mark chapter 9, another desperate man came to Jesus on behalf of his son. His son had been possessed by a demon since childhood. And that demon had often thrown him both into the fire and into the water in an effort to destroy him. If you're a parent, that's the stuff of nightmares. In desperation, the man said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out, says, and began saying, as if he said it more than once, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Did Jesus at that point say, Well, that's not good enough. Be gone with you? No. Jesus healed his son. John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will in no way cast out. This man had come with weak faith, hesitant faith, uncertain faith. And Jesus turned that into real faith. But we need to understand this, beloved, throughout His earthly ministry, and still today, many people come to Jesus as consumers instead of worshipers. They seek the benefit that they hope He can give them. And as well-practiced consumers, they're careful to make sure that they read the product features. 
and that the, the promises that the product has line up with their expectations on their schedule and on their terms. They trust in Jesus, or their trust in Jesus extends only so far as His compliance with their expectations. That faith, that kind of faith doesn't change anything about the person that exercises it. Not one thing. Those people believe only what they can see. That's how the Galileans approach Jesus as consumers. Jesus will not allow that approach to stand. He's not seeking consumers. He's seeking true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's seeking worshipers who trust His promises because of who He is. Because of who He is. At this point, some of you may be thinking, well, okay, then why did Jesus do miracles? I'm really glad you asked that question. I'm not going to try to give you a comprehensive explanation of why Jesus did miracles, but I want to give you what I am convinced is the number one reason that Jesus did miracles and the number one reason that God the Father did miracles throughout the Old Testament. First, what it's not. It is not to prove to human beings that He's worthy of our trust. God will never subject Himself to a human court to prove His worthiness to the likes of us. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has left mankind with absolutely no cause to distrust His character or His Word. Ever. God the Father commands us to believe in Him and in His Son. The obligation is always on our side. It's never on His side. Never. God does not do miracles to give us a precedent for knowing how He's going to fix our next problem. He doesn't heal one man so that I'll know that when I get sick, He's going to heal me. He doesn't do miracles so that you can be sure He'll come running the next time you've got a problem and He'll jump through your hoops and fix it for you the way you want it fixed. That's nowhere in God's agenda. Ever. If you want to know what God promises to do for you while you're here on this earth waiting for Christ's return, go look at the Bible and see what God promises to do for you while you're here on this earth. You know what it is? He promises to give you a share in the sufferings of Christ. That's the essence of what He promises to you here. So that you may share in His glory when He returns. You want to know what God promises you here and now? Look at what He says He promises. Don't look at His miracles. And don't get me wrong, the miracles that Jesus did when He was here the first time most assuredly give us a preview of what His kingdom on earth will be like when He brings it. They most assuredly demonstrate for us what God is like. His character and His ways. But His promises to you and me here and now are all about setting the stage for all that. They are about our participation in the sufferings of Christ to set the stage for Christ's return 
And they are about our propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to populate His kingdom. That's what His promises to us are about. The purpose of the miraculous signs that Jesus did was to identify Himself to one audience after another. To identify Himself as God so people would know who they were dealing with. Throughout the Old Testament, God did miracles not as ends in themselves, but to identify the source of His message. His Word. To make it clear to mankind that He was the one talking to them. You know how many times in the Old Testament God declares explicitly that His mighty acts of both deliverance and judgment were done and will be done so that men will, quote, know that I am Yahweh. Seventy-seven times. God, in effect, is saying, I, the one speaking to you through My prophet, the one giving you My commandments, the one declaring both blessing and curse, judgment and deliverance, I am Yahweh. Jesus did miracles for the same reason as His Father to identify Himself as the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Savior of the world. So that we would believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing we would have life in His name. Jesus never said, I'm here to bring you back to life from the dead, Lazarus, so you can die again later. He said, I'm the one who is the resurrection and the life. Here's an example. Here's a little preview. You see the difference between treating the preview as the real deal and recognizing that it's a declaration of who Jesus is? Let me boil this down to uh, just the essentials before we walk, walk out of here. We uh, are in the habit of saying to God, seeing is believing. So show me what you got and I'll decide if you're worthy of my trust. Even as, even as the redeemed of God, we still carry around that, that very nasty habit. God says to us, no, my child, hearing is believing. And believing is seeing. How did the Samaritans come to believe? <laughs> they heard the Word of Jesus. That's how any human being goes from unbelief to belief. Faith, Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. That doesn't mean everyone who hears with their physical ears gets saved. It means everyone who hears the declared, proclaimed Word of God and is given ears to hear, spiritual ears, is saved. They come to faith. It's a gift. It's the work of God from A to Z. But hearing is believing, not seeing. Seeing is not believing. 
Hearing is believing and believing is seeing. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was standing right in front of him. You have to hear and believe in order to see. Hebrews 11.1 Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of what? Things not seen. Romans 8, 24 and 25, hope that is seen is not hope. Why would, why does one hope for what he already sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, with eagerness, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. That's the life of the believer. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, not only are we, do we come to life by hearing and believing. We live every day by hearing and believing. 2 Corinthians 5.7 We walk by faith and not by sight. After Jesus was resurrected, His disciple Thomas, this is real quick, His disciple Thomas said to the other disciples, unless I shall see in His hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into His side, I will not believe. Now Jesus graciously condescended to show Thomas what he asked to see. But when after he did, he gave Thomas a command. Be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas believed. And that's when he really saw. That's when he really saw Jesus. He said, he felt him. He said, my Lord and my God. He went from being a consumer to being a true worshiper of the living God who came from heaven to earth to be the Savior of the world. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. God may use what we see with our physical eyes to bring us face to face with Christ, but that's just an introduction. That's just the handshake. It's when we hear the word of our Savior, the word that's all about Him, and we believe that word that we truly see. That is true, beloved, that is true every moment of your life. We have to hear to believe. We have to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to Him. And then we trust what He says because we find Him to be absolutely trustworthy. That's when we see. Father, as we come into this week in which many people around us celebrate something they call Christmas, Lord, we ask that You would fill our hearts with a real celebration. You would fill our hearts with Your Word, with Your proclamation, with Your witness concerning Your Son. And Lord, You would cause us every moment each day to go back to that Word and to trust what You have said. Because we know in that trusting, in that trusting, Father, is real sight. Father, we pray that You would use us even this week as we talk with people who, who are talking about Christmas. 
to remind them that Christ is the only life that exists. Make us those who bear Your Word to lost people that You might use that Word to bring them out of darkness and into light. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.